So, grab your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 17 this morning. Many, many years ago, in fact, it was September 28th, 1789, uh, just before leaving for recess, the First Continental Congress, the first federal Congress, I should say, passed a resolution asking that the president would uh, create a day of thanksgiving. They wanted him to create a, a day, a proclamation that would be for the people to celebrate and to show gratitude for the gifts and the blessings of God. And so November 26, 1789 was that first Thanksgiving day. The first time that Thanksgiving was to be celebrated by our new constitutional government. After that, many presidents made proclamations year in and year out of a day to give thanks. That day was not always the same day. It was not even the same month. In fact, it wasn't until President Abraham Lincoln in his 1863, 1863 proclamation, I'll get it after a little bit, made Thanksgiving a national holiday. In fact, the last Thursday of each November was to commemorate the day to give thanks to the Lord. This national holiday set up for us, established for us, there at the outset of our nation, an opportunity to celebrate the Lord's goodness. I trust that this past week as we gathered with, in homes with family and friends, as we gathered around a table, as we took and feasted on whether or not it was turkey or ham or turkey and ham or a steak or a lamb chop, whatever your choice of dinner was, I hope that as you gather together, you took time to think about all the Lord's done for you this past year and to thank him for his goodness. I think many times when we gather at Thanksgiving, we only think about the good things and we fail to think about the bad, seemingly bad things in our life and identify them as good as well because whether or not life has been easy or whether or not life has been hard, God is to be thanked for both. God is a good God. And so the beauty of Thanksgiving is that it forces us to examine our lives. It forces us to, to intentionally and purposely think about the blessings that God has given and to then express gratitude in response. It's biblical precedent for this all throughout the scriptures. Have you ever thought about it? I mean, King David himself in Psalm verse one, Psalm 9 verse 1 says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. You know, recounting the deeds of the Lord requires an examination of one's life. It demands a person to think through all of the many scenarios that the Lord's hand has been involved in. Self-examination is one of the key activities. We might even describe it this morning as a spiritual discipline that we would often and, and purposely reflect upon ourselves and examine ourselves and to think about the Lord and his goodness and the Lord and his purposeful walk alongside of us. It's something that the person who wants to walk with Jesus and who wants to resemble Jesus, that's that person who's going to do these things. But it's not just for Christians to say this. The great Greek philosopher Socrates says that the unexamined life is not worth living. And so this morning, as, as we sat here on the backside of Thanksgiving, as we sat here uh, three or four days removed from that and looking now toward Christmas, I mean, this, this, this next month's going to be a whirlwind for us, right? It's going to be busy. It's going to be action-packed. And so we, so we sat here this morning and, and think about this past holiday and what it means for us as we think about what it means to examine ourselves. I wonder how many of us intentionally and how many of us routinely sit down, take our Bible, bow our heads, and just pray something like this. Lord, help me to see your activity. Lord, help me to see where I've been right. Help me to see where I've been wrong. Bring a strong self-assessment to my mind and to my heart. This ought to be a common practice in our lives. And as we look at our passage this morning, we're going to see that and see this need. You see, God's people must face offenses faithfully and honestly and lovingly, and so we need to think through the offenses. And, and sometimes the offenses that we find, the assessment that we do of ourselves, doesn't just show that we have been offended. It tells us that we have, we have been the offender. We have not just been offended, but we have been the offender. So they come 
As we come here to the Lord's word, as we see what we're going to see in these first six verses, we need to understand that to choose sin and to choose to sin against God and to choose to sin against others means that we need to do something with it. We need to have this self-examination. And so I just want you to think this morning about Thanksgiving. It calls us to think back this morning as we look at these verses that we're going to see in the first part of chapter 17. It's calling us to look back, assess our lives, examine in our lives and to see where we might have missed the mark. We want to pay attention to ourselves. And so if you got your Bible there, look with me in Luke chapter 17. Let's begin reading in verse 1, go through verse 6. I'm going to come back, give a little context, and then I'm going to give you five responses this morning in response to sin. That doesn't sound on the front end like a real cheerful message, Right? A couple of our small groups this morning were dealing with the, uh, the idea of hell today. I know not all of our small groups are on that curriculum, and so the one or two small groups who are dealing with that, you're coming out of a, a, a conversation about hell. Now you're going into a conversation about sin, which leads people to hell. So let me just kind of help you today. This is uplifting because we need to know what, need to, know what to do with our sin. Verse 1, Luke says, and he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Verse 5. The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. This morning, as we look over these verses, I want you to keep in mind that Jesus is continuing his journey toward Jerusalem, right? We've been talking about that. We get to a certain point in the chapter in the Gospel of Luke, and we begin to see that Jesus is setting his face toward Jerusalem. He's moving in that direction. He's not moving away. He's not going further north. He's not going further east. He's moving down from the north, moves a little bit east, but he is headed toward Jerusalem. He's headed to the cross that is awaiting him. And so as he makes this way toward Jerusalem, Jesus is continuing to teach his disciples. He's trying to prepare them for everything that they're going to see and what they're going to see take place in his life. He's preparing them for that moment, but he's also preparing them for their inheritance of what they're going to have to pick up when he's no longer around. Jesus is going to be crucified. He's going to be buried. He's going to raise from the dead. He's going to spend 40 days with them, but then he's ascending to the Father. And so he will not always be with them bodily. So Jesus is preparing his disciples. So as we look at the text and we look at this gospel from 2,000 years removed, we need to see that it's first spoken to the disciples, but it's also spoken to our lives. It has implication and application for us today. And so right here in Luke chapter 17, we're going to see this morning, and we're going to see over the next few Sundays, very important lessons for us to learn. Lessons on forgiveness, lessons on faithfulness, lessons on thankfulness, lessons on readiness, that we need to be ready for the kingdom. These disciples needed to hear, and they needed to heed these lessons. And so this morning, I want to encourage you as we talk about the, this, this imperative to pay attention to yourselves, to do a self-examination, to take a self-assessment of your life. Let's hear the word of God. Let's heed the word of God. As we finished chapter 16 last Sunday, we saw there that Jesus has been warning the disciples, specifically the last half of that chapter, he was warning the disciples about the sin of loving money. And so in chapter 70, 17, he turns to his disciples to warn them about possible sins in their own lives. It was important for them to recognize their propensity to engage in sin. Do you think you need to have that lesson this morning? I mean, do you have a natural propensity to sin? Do you have a natural tendency to, to sway, to move away from the Lord? 
to stray anybody at all, or am I the only one raising my hand this morning, right? I think we have that. So he's speaking to his disciples. Again, he's training, he's teaching, he's preparing them, but he's doing the same thing for us. So we today must see that the many opportunities to sin is a natural and it's a dangerous part of living in a fallen world. Sin is rampant. Sin is available. The harm that comes from sin in someone else is also natural and a part of a fallen world. So in other words, it is natural and it is, it is typical that we will be tempted to fall into sin. And it's also, so that's me actively engaging in sin, but it's also rampant and it's also natural. and It's also part of living in a fallen world that someone else's sin affects my life and it would affect your life. So we're going to look at that this morning in these six verses in Luke 17. So here Jesus is going to call us to self-examination, and he's going to call us to spiritual awareness. So let's look at this call to pay attention to ourselves and see five responses to sin that we need to make. Here's number one. We need to expect to be tempted by sin. Expect to be tempted by sin. Verse one, he says, temptations are sure to come. You see? I mean, it's pretty clear. We should expect to be tempted by sin. Temptations are sure to come. So to be tempted to sin is to live in a fallen world. It's to live in a world that is in rebellion against God. The Apostle Paul understood this, and he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, you are not facing a temptation. You're not facing something that's going to sway you to walk away from the Lord. That is only something that you've experienced. No, it's everywhere. It is common to man. All of us are facing the same temptations, the same swaying to walk away from the Lord. Bruce Weidman magnified this truth when he said this, and I quote, to a greater or lesser degree, if you are alive, you are tempted, end of quote. I mean, if you're alive, you are tempted. How many of you were tempted this morning? Well, say, Pastor, I was driving to church. I didn't see a billboard to tempt me, or I didn't see something on TV because I didn't have time to watch something on TV. You don't have to see something grand and, and just monumental to be tempted. Sometimes it's the easy, simple uh, things that we don't even take stock of that's tempting us, right? The way we respond to situations. Temptations are everywhere. And so every living person does, and every person will face this sort of enticement. And so Jesus says here, temptations to sin are sure to come. The temptations Jesus is speaking of are best understood as stum stumbling blocks. The, the Greek word is scandalon. That, that's what it means. It is a stumbling block. So these are ideas. These are promises. These are material things that are literally thrown out in front of a person to trip them up. And trip up their pursuit of God, all for the purpose of leading people astray. So temptations are a fact of life. The sinful condition of humanity makes them inevitable. We live in a fallen world because we are fallen creatures, and the world in which we live in has been cursed. So the destructiveness of sin is seen throughout the general culture. I want you to just understand that this morning. This destructiveness, this concept of temptation is throughout the general culture. It's a part of society. It's what it means to live in a fallen world. So you don't have to, it's not required that you be in some sort of subset within the culture. Like, well, I'm not a part of that aspect of culture. I'm over here in this more good and more righteous subset of culture. No, temptations are in both, right? Temptations are in both. I remember years ago, first time I ever flew to East East Africa, East Central Africa, we had a long layover. In fact, we spent the night in Amsterdam. And I'd always heard about the red light district in Amsterdam. So we flew in there. We had a night, uh, really a whole day into the night, flew out the next morning. So we went to Anne Frank's house. We, we ate some really good Dutch food just down from Anne Frank's house. We walked around this beautiful cathedral that no one actually worshipped in, apparently, because it was boarded up. It was just a, a hor horrible thing to see, but it was extremely beautiful. So we spent this incredible day walking around the streets and the canals of Amsterdam. Late that, later that evening, it was obviously already dark, it was in January, we're walking back to the train center to take a train back to uh, the airport outside of Amsterdam. And we got off our 
we got off the path a couple blocks, and we were walking down uh, these, these roads a couple blocks from where we were supposed to be, we found out. And I began to notice, like, down the road across the street, these red windows, and it looked like people were moving, like they would just move a little bit. And I, I couldn't figure it out. And then all of a sudden, it dawned on me, we are not where we're supposed to be. We're in the red light district of Amsterdam. Now, I, honestly, I, I can say that we didn't linger. We didn't go in the doors. We, we saw what we saw, and we made it back over a couple blocks where we could get on safe ground. But the point here is you don't have to be in a subset of culture to face a temptation, right? Temptation is everywhere. It is sure to come. So every aspect of every culture is filled with temptations. Temptations are espoused by intellectuals, they're espoused by pleasure seekers, they're espoused by celebrities and religious leaders, they're espoused by the rich, the poor, it doesn't matter. Temptations are sure to come. So all of these and more are working together to cause people to fall or to walk into greater and greater sin. The goal in all of this is to lead people away from God and to lead people toward self, which is a direction where Satan is. Or the enemy is. It's to create a hatred for God within the life. Temptations are external influences, but they appeal to what is found within one's heart. So as we see what Jesus is saying here, temptations are sure to come. We need to understand that there are external influences. They're going to be involved in our lives. They're going to be seeking to draw us away. But James tells us that the temptation itself is not sin. It's what the temptation finds within our hearts, the desire within our hearts. And when those two meet, that's when sin takes place. So in, this, in other words, I'm in that red light district, right? I'm walking with, I don't know, 15, 18 other brothers and sisters from northwest Alabama. And we are headed down to Uganda to spend time, 10 days on a mission trip, preaching the gospel. We see where we are, and we decided we don't need to be here and we moved. So the temptation was there. We saw what we saw. We decided we don't want this and we definitely don't need this. And we moved elsewhere. So we were not sinning because we we're in the red light district. We would have been sinning and we said, you know what? I've heard about this. Let's go in and just check it out. That's where the sin was. So thankfully in that moment, it found no desire within our hearts. Or at least we were in a group of people and we wouldn't dare act on that desire. Right? That's another thing. Right? We didn't be honest. Sometimes we don't sin because we're in a context of people that gives us no opportunity because of the shame it would bear. Right? So we got to do self-examination, self-assessment. Where is my heart and what is it longing for? Is it longing for the Lord? Is it longing for the Lord's word? Temptations are these external influences. So we should expect to be tempted by sin because we're not yet fully sanctified. There's this desire within our hearts that when that temptation comes, it's going to find that, that desire. And based upon the level of sanctification at the time, that's what's going to determine the action that is taking place. And so within every one of us, there remains their propensity and the desire to sin because none of us are fully sanctified. Hopefully, most of us in here are being sanctified. In other words, we're in relationship with Jesus, but none of us are sanctified. None of us are fully made in the image and likeness of God. None of us have no desire to sin. No, we're still encased with this thing the Bible calls flesh, so there is a desire to sin. These temptations entice that desire, that they pull, they influence, they entice the flesh to do what is wrong, to do what is evil. And so according to James, the decision made about a, a, a temptation determines whether sin will be produced. That's the first response we need to make. Expect to be tempted by sin. As we're paying attention to ourselves, our first response is to expect to be tempted. To be tempted. Number two. Beware of being used by sin. Beware of being used by sin. Uh, do you notice the woe that's in verse 1? Temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one by whom they come. Right? 
While it's not good to be tempted, being tempted is a common fact of life. We've established that. The worst thing or the worser thing is being part of the temptation in someone else's life. That's where this woe is coming from. That's, just, that's where this woe is speaking to. When a person engages in leading an individual into a sinful decision, that person, listen to this, is engaging in the business of Satan himself, who is the great tempter, and God will not go easy on such a person. That's why he offers this woe. In verse 2, he, he, he defines what this woe is warning of. See, the woe here issued by Jesus is not a threat that a millstone will be hung around a person's neck as he's cast into the sea. He's arguing from lesser to greater. He's saying this, that if you are the one through whom the temptation comes, God is so serious about sin that it would be better for you to die a horrific death of having a multi-thousand-pound millstone hung about your neck, cast into the sea, and you plunging down to the bottom of the sea and dying from drowning. That would be grace and mercy by God. But that's not what you will receive. He said that would be better. And so that leads us to believe that the, the judgment is far greater on those who would lead people into sin, that those who would be the ones through whom the temptation comes. God is serious about sin. And so for this reason, we ought to seek to put, death to sin, put sin to death in our lives so that we cannot and we will not be used by sin to lead others into our own sinful behavior. I mean, this morning as we think about this, I want you to just visualize and think about the sin in your life, the things that you struggle with. Take your church face off, take your church hat off for a moment, and just be vulnerable with the Lord and vulnerable with yourself and say, there's my sin, and I know it really, really well. How is the enemy using this to be a temptation to someone else? Because the Lord's serious about that. The Lord's serious about your walk with him, your holiness, and how the enemy would use you to bring sin into another person's life. Sin always wants coming. You may be thinking this morning, well, I'm pretty good about managing my sin. Are you? Are you good about managing your sin? I, I, my, my history, my, my experience with sin is that it manages me. I may put on the facade that I'm keeping it all together and I'm looking good, but while, it, while I'm trying to manage the outside, you know what's happening on the inside? Rot and decay as it takes over more and more and more in my life. And it gets to a point where you can no longer hold it in. It becomes very apparent that sin has a hold of your life, right? Man, I've known guys and gals throughout my 25 plus years of ministry where they looked really good on the outside, but obviously what was going on in the inside was a giving in to sin more and more in their life until that moment it became apparent. Why did it become apparent? Because you can't hide it forever. Sin will always find you out. Sin will always come to the surface. Sin will always show its ugly head. And so what we want to do as believers we want to constantly crucify that sin, put that sin to death in our life, because we do not want to walk sinfully before the Lord, and we definitely don't want to cause our brothers and sisters or lost people to fall into sin, to be part of the temptation. So as we are seeking to pay attention to ourselves, our second response is to beware of being used by sin. There's a third response. Call out sin when it is seen. That's what we're seeing in verse 3. So the fact that sin is a part of everyone's life experience in this fallen world leads Jesus to press the disciples toward self-examination, right? He says in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. In other words, what he's saying here is believers should be cognizant of how they live their lives. Pay attention. Pay attention to the way you speak. Pay attention to the way you think. Pay attention to the way you act. For us today, pay attention to what you're looking at. Pay attention to what you're listening to. Pay attention to the people you're hanging around. Pay attention to your life, how you think, how you operate. Pay attention. Be a self-examiner. Be a self-assessor. Know where you're at morally and spiritually. It's a call here for personal self-assessment. But it's also a call 
to corporate self-assessment or corporate examination, corporal assessment. Because he goes on to say, if your brother sins, rebuke him. How many of us like rebuking sin? Please don't raise your hand. I, I know most of us don't. The few of you who do, you've got issues yourself, you know, because you shouldn't want to rebuke sin. You shouldn't want, like, I want to get in a fight today. That, that shouldn't be your, your, your modus operandi. That, that shouldn't be the way you operate in life. But, but here Jesus calls us, commands us to rebuke the one who sins. So the command here means that not only are we to watch ourselves, but we're also to watch over one another. That you literally are your brother and sister's keeper. And that's what our church covenant in our church calls us to as well. That we would live a type of life, a covenant type of life where we are looking over the spiritual integrity and the spiritual vitality of one another, the moral vitality of one another. We are to call out sin where it is seen. Perhaps the first thing you think about when you hear that is, man, this could be overdone. Man, this could be, this could be misused. This could be morphed into real judgmentalism within the church that we would be those who are beating people over the head with our righteousness and with our morality. And I guess that's true. But for, the, for most situations, while this command to rebuke sin can be mismanaged, I think more importantly... We can do more harm by not saying anything. Because that's our natural tendency, I think, is to, man, I don't, I don't really want to get involved. That's not really my place. Or I don't feel like I have the integrity to speak into that situation because i got my own issues that I'm dealing with. And so rather than step in and do what Jesus tells us to do here, we draw back and we do nothing. And we hope that someone else will speak in to that person's life or we don't care at all. It's one of those two situations. So Jesus' words here, we need to understand, they imply a deep love and a deep care for the offender as seen in the second half of verse 3. Look what he says there in verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. That speaks of the fact that there is deep love. Then he goes on to say, if he repents, forgive him. We're going to talk about forgiveness in a moment. But in all of this... The reason he's saying this is because we ought to and we will have, if we're walking with the Lord, a deep love and a deep concern for those who are the offenders. So we should never enjoy rebuking someone's sin. That should never be something we're getting fired up over. Like, man, I'm excited to go in and, and, and get into this, this argument with someone else about their walk of, walk of life. But the fact that believers have experienced grace will often lead us, unfortunately, to fail to call out sin because we just want to be gracious and we just want to be merciful. But did Jesus ever act toward us like that? No, it was grace and it's mercy that doesn't give us hell, right? It's his mercy that doesn't give us what we deserve. It's his grace that gives us what we don't deserve. But in no way does Jesus ever just say, you know, that's really no big deal. It's no big deal that, you, that you're sinful. It's no big deal that you walked away from me. I mean, think about the Garden of Eden, the very first two, two human beings. God says, here's everything for your enjoyment. Enjoy it. It's yours. But of that one tree, don't eat of it. And when they ate of it, it's, we don't read in Genesis 3 that God just came in and says, you know what? No big deal. I know you meant better. No, he says, get out. Get out. Now, it's not before they experience grace and mercy because he doesn't kill them and he does give them an opportunity spiritually. We see that in the Genesis chapter 3 where he kills and makes a covering for their sin and the shame. But their sin negated their privilege of staying in the Garden of Eden. God is serious about sin. He calls us to rebuke it, to call it out when it is seen. So I want you to think about some questions this morning. How much holier would your life be? How much holier would our lives be? Would our church be if we took verse 3 seriously and obeyed it? Think about that. If you allowed others to speak into your life, how much different would you look? 
If you took verse 3 seriously and you spoke into someone else's life, how much holier would they be? And then you just multiply that by the number of people in our church and how much holier would our church be? You say, our church is doing pretty good. Does it really look that much like Jesus? Don't get me wrong. I think we love Jesus and I think we love his word. I think we're doing good. But we got a whole long ways to go. How much holier would we be if we were willing to call out sin where it is seen. So this morning, you might agree with me, but you're wondering about the standard. I mean, what's the standard here? The standard is God's word, right? The, the standard is God's word. That's what we looked at last Sunday in the second half of chapter 16. The standard is the word that God has spoken. In fact, what we saw there, if you just take that one, what seemed like an obscure verse in chapter 16, verse 18, where it talks about divorce. What if we as God's people in God's church, if we took that and we said, you know what, brother, the way you're treating your wife looks nothing like Christ in the church. It looks nothing the way Jesus loves his people. And what if we're willing as a brother speaking into another brother about the way he's treating, loving, or lack of loving his wife. Or take that on the other side. What if you ladies were willing to speak into the life of your sister when she's not loving her husband and the way she should? And we just said, we want to be holy. We're committing ourselves to be holy. We're committing as a church to be holy. And we're willing, we're so willing to do this that we're going to call sin out where we see it. What would our lives look like? What image would we be portraying to a world that's watching us? You say, I don't really care about us. They absolutely care about us. That's why there's such a fuss when we stand up and say, these issues that we're falling down on morally and socially are wrong. They take note of that and they scrutinize us for it. They are absolutely paying attention to us. So they're watching our lives. They know that as Christians, our lives ought to look different than their lives. Apostle Paul, in the letter to the Ephesians, instructs those believers in the church to speak the truth in love. See, there's no room for letting fellow brothers and sisters comfortably dwell in their sin. Instead, our duty is to rebuke it. We are to call it out. We are to demand repentance. And so when we think about that, let's keep in mind that our aim should never be to embarrass. It should never be to hurt the offender, but it is always to encourage repentance. Now, will that person be hurt, perhaps? Will that person be embarrassed? Absolutely, but that's not our goal and intention. That's not what we're driving at. We're not trying to tar and feather people and put them out in stocks in front of our church building saying, look at these heathens here. Because the truth be told, we should be out there in stocks. Our call from Jesus here is to rebuke sin for the purpose of repentance. And when we do nothing here this church, we are culpable in our silence. So as we seek to pay attention to ourselves, the third response that we see here is to call out sin when it's seen. Fourth response, forgive sin where there is repentance or when there is repentance. So the duty to rebuke is attached to this responsibility to forgive. He says, call out sin, rebuke sin when there's, free, when there's repentance. Jesus here is clarifying this connection because he knows the struggle that people face with such a situation. So the temptation for believers when rebuking sin is to remain silent and to do nothing. That is one of the greatest temptations we face, is that we see sin in our brother or sister. We see sin even in our brothers and sisters who are closest to us, right? Now, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, those of us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But in a church that has 350-ish, 400 people who come in and out of our doors each and every Sunday, we don't know everybody, right? I talked about that several weeks ago. So we all have a little closer circle that we run in. And so we may say, well, we need to speak to the people's lives who are not so close to us. But those really tight circles, we have a tendency to not say anything. We can't do that. Can't do that. We need to speak, and when speaking, rebuking, be ready to forgive. And so both failing to speak, failing to forgive, both are wrong, both are antithetical to the gospel. Verse 3 and 4 here give us a balanced instruction on how to deal with sin within the body of the church. We are to rebuke it, and we are to forgive it when there is repentance. 
You remember the story a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 15? Let me just kind of illustrate what Jesus is driving at here. Luke 15, there's this story, this parable of what we call the prodigal son. That's probably a, a bad title for the parable. The parable is more about the father than it is about the son. But remember the story. You've got this son. He comes to his father prematurely. Like his dad's not dead yet, but he comes and says, I want my inheritance. I, I don't want to wait till you kick the bucket. I want it today. And the father, for some reason, graciously gives it. He takes the inheritance. He goes off to a faraway place, and he wastes it in reckless living. That's how the text reads. He finds himself at the lowest of lows. You get a Jewish young man here finding himself slopping hogs. This is not a place to be for a good, kosher, young Jewish man, right? So he comes to his senses, the Bible says, and he realizes, I, have it, I had it better. In fact, my servants, the servants who serve my father back home, have it better than I do here in the slop with these hogs. And so well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going home. So he goes home, and he begins to confess to his father, I have sinned against you and you alone. What does the father do in that? He forgives him. How do we know he forgives him? Because he calls his servants and he says, I want you to get a robe, and I want you to get a ring, and I want you to get some shoes, and I want you to bring out that fattened calf that we've been waiting to slaughter. Because tonight we're going to have a party. Tonight we're going to celebrate. Tonight we're going to get down, and we're going to make a big deal about my son who was lost, my son who was dead, who's come home. He has now life in him because he has repented of his sins. That's what Jesus calls us to do. And so when we think about this, this imperative to forgive sin when there is repentance, that's the picture of it. That we forgive sin in a brother or sister when that sin has been repented of. Maybe this morning you're sitting here saying, well, that, that, that's nice and, and that's good. But what responsibility does the father have if that son gets up and leaves again? You ever thought about that? It's not the point of that parable, but life experience would tell us that, man, I, I've had a person who's wronged me, and that person came and, and asked for forgiveness. That person showed repentance, but that person turned around and left again, or that person turned around and hurt me again. The text here in verses 3 and 4 in Luke 17 tells us that we're to forgive every single time. Jesus says, if that person comes to you and sins seven times and repents seven times, what does he say? You might want to forgive. You, you, you can think about forgiving. Is that what Jesus says? What does he say? You must forgive him. You must forgive him. Now, now, we think of this in the context of someone committing the same sin over and over and over again. And perhaps that happens at times. But the, the, the imperative here is not that it's the same sin. It's just that that person's sinning again. We need to remember that none of us are perfect, and so we might have repented of this sin that we've offended someone with, but, and we're not committing that sin again, but we may hurt them in another way and in another way. So we should never just write somebody off because they've sinned against us. No, that's not what God does with us. What was your biggest struggle when you came to know Jesus Christ? Pornography, alcoholism, bitterness and hatred, you were a fighter, you were a cusser. What, what was the big stuff that was really visible? And hopefully you're not struggling with those same things anymore. So Jesus forgave you of that, and Jesus has cleansed that from your life, but you're not yet fully sanctified, right? There's other things. Here's what your life is like. It's like the onion that you just continue to peel back the layers. And the more you walk with Jesus and the closer you walk with Jesus, the more you see in your own depravity and the more you see your own sin. So you're offensive to the Lord in this way that's really visible, and then God sanctifies that, and then you're offending him this way, and he forgives that, and he sanctifies that. And so that's the way we're to treat others. Forgive sin when there is forgiveness. The command here is an imperative. But the key point in forgiving is repentance. When a person says, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to turn from this way of living. I'm going to forgive. Now, there's much we could say about forgiveness. I don't have time to go into the nuances of that. I would say this. You should forgive a person regardless of whether or not there's repentance. You can't hold that over their head because that's going to eat you alive. But when a person comes to you and says, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. I'm never going to do that again in your life. And there's genuine repentance. 
You have no, no other obligation other than to forgive that person. Forgive sin, all right? That's our fourth response as we're seeking to pay attention to ourselves. Fifthly, and I gotta hurry, ask for faith to forgive sin. I think this is where verse five and six help us because when we think about sin, we think about uh, forgiving sin, that, that is a tall order. So we're wondering here, how in the world can I ever do that? You see, on a human level, Jesus' instruction to forgive the same person repeatedly may sound illogical. It might even sound naive to you. And so like me, you're thinking here, your, your mind's probably going to the idea of forgiving the same sin over and over and over again, but that's not what the text is necessarily implying. It's just calling for seven acts of forgiveness in response to seven acts of repentance. And so I believe it's important for us to know that there is no command to entrust a forgiven offender with what he or she has misused. And so it just tells us to forgive sin. But this morning, if you have someone who's sinned against you, maybe they've stolen. Like, you know, they stole. Let's just put it in something maybe with me. Um, you know, I've got a wallet and uh, it, I don't know, somehow it falls out of my pocket or I leave it somewhere and, and one of you find it, right? Usually I don't carry a wallet anyway. I carry my money in my pocket. So if you're sticking your hands in my pockets, I'm going to give you an elbow or something. So I don't have to worry about this too much. But what if I have a wallet or something, it falls out and you are gracious and you bring it to me, but one of the 20s is missing. I'm like, hey man, I had $100 in here and there's only 80 now. Where's it at? I don't know. I don't know where it's at. Um, you stole from me, Right? You stole from me. That's not right. And so you may come to me like, Pastor, I'm sorry, I was in a tight spot. And I lied about that. I said it didn't take it. I said, you know, I didn't touch it or I counted it and it was all there. And yet, yet, you give me some excuse. And so you're just saying, Pastor, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Forgive me. Um, no excuse for that. Biblically speaking, what Jesus is saying here is I'm to forgive the person who stole from me but is repentant and made it right. Okay, forgive. Case closed. Let's not talk about it again. Let's move on. But I ain't probably going to give you my wallet to hold. <laughs> I'm not going to go in business with you. I've forgiven you. I'm not talking about it again. But wisdom tells me I'm not going to trust someone who just yesterday stole from me. So I'm not going to be naive. I'm not going to be ignorant. I'm going to be wise and I'm going to be astute in the way I approach this. Right? Shrewd. I like that word. I've been using that word since a few messages ago. So we want to forgive people. But, man, it's, sometimes it's hard to do so. So how are we to forgive people? Well, we do so because the Lord tells us to do so, and we do so because the Lord gives us the ability to do just that. It takes faith. To forgive people who've hurt you. And so the apostles here in verse 5 say, Lord, increase our faith. This morning you may be thinking of a scenario where someone has really hurt you. And you hear the appeal from the word to say, you gotta, you got to forgive this person. And you're wondering, how can I ever forgive them? The way they've spoken to me. The way they've treated me. The things that they have said out in the public about me. Right? All of us have been there. All of us have been there. You know, my deepest hurts in life have been from people who have professed to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Man, I've served some churches, not trying to be derogatory, but I've served some churches in years past where you walk into a members meeting, and I'm just thinking, who's going to stab me in the back today? That's not a good place to be. Now, I'll probably argue that those people weren't Christians. They just wore a label across their chest. I don't I don't know how you can live like hell and, and know Jesus, but that's beside the point. But th there's deep hurt there. And so I can either be bitter toward them, I can be embittered toward ministers where some people get, or I can choose to forgive, move on, be wise in how I'm moving on. I mean, think about it. Those people who have stabbed me, hurt me deeply, I'm probably not going to rub shoulders with and, and invite them over for weekly meals, though it probably wouldn't be a bad thing after a certain point of time. Moving toward full reconciliation, but I am not going to fully trust someone with my heart right off the bat, but I've got to forgive them. I've got to move on. How do I do that? I do it with the Lord's help. So they say, Lord, increase our faith. 
And Jesus says, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted, planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, I don't know about you, but I've, I've read a lot of history, I've learned a lot of history, and no history book has ever told me of a mulberry tree being uprooted and thrown into the ocean because someone said, go and do that. But Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, very, really, really small, you could do that. The point in all of this, because this Eastern languages, they use very vivid, very visual uh, language. And so the point what Jesus is driving home is this. Trust the Lord and he'll give you the power to do that. If you want to do what the Lord's commanding you to do, to forgive people, ask for the faith to do it. God, I know I should forgive. Right now, I don't want to forgive, but I know it's what I need to do. Help me by faith. Give me the ability to do this. That's what Jesus is saying here. So we ask for faith to forgive the sin of others. Faith is a very powerful thing. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about faith in faith. I'm talking about faith in the Lord, trust in the Lord's power. So we're saying, Lord, increase my faith. It's not, Lord, conjure up something within me to do this. No, Lord, help me to see your power being pressed out through my life. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Not this weird energy type thing, this, this force type thing that some people like to make Christianity into. That's not what we're talking about here. Jesus is saying this, or the apostles are saying, increase our faith, increase our ability to trust you and to believe you and to walk that out in our lives. Lord, we can't do it, but we know you can. We know you want to. Now make that happen in me. That's what these verses are saying. So Jesus grants us the supply, the power to forgive and to forgive and to forgive. So this morning, as we seek to pay attention to ourselves, our fifth response is to ask for faith to forgive. And so are you paying attention to yourself? Do you know yourself pretty well today? Uh, Do you do regular self-assessments? Do you do self-examinations? Do you even slow down enough to think about where you're walking with Jesus? Do you hear me? Do you slow down enough to take a serious self-assessment? We talk about reading the Bible. We're going to have another Bible reading coming out this next month for 2024. And I believe, and I tell you this all the time, it is vitally important to your walk with God to read the Bible systematically throughout the year, every single day. And we talk about how important it is for your walk with Jesus to spend time in prayer, devotionally, talking with the Father, speaking with him, having him speak to you. We need all of those things. But here's what I've found in my own life, and I think I've seen it in your lives, is that we can do all those, all those things, but we do them really, really fast. And we don't really step back and say, Lord, help me to see myself. Next July, Lord willing, I'll be on sabbatical for the whole month, for the first time ever in my life. I really don't know what to do at that time. I've told people, I'm like, I think I'm going to be bored. To not work for four weeks, 30 days? I guess I'll fish, but I'm going to get bored fishing. That's, like, that's an oxymoron, I eat bored fishing. But I think I'll get bored. I like to work. I like to do things. I like to move. I like to do things all the time, right? Here's what I think I really need to step back. I, I, I think I'm coming to this conclusion. We're going to do stuff. We're going to, as a family, go and do some things. My wife and I are going to a retreat in Michigan that we were given through Life Action last year. We're going to do some of those things, but I hope in all of that, no matter what we do, what I want to do is be able to slow down and just pause and take a self-assessment. self-assessment. Where am I at? This morning, that's what I want you to do for the next few minutes. Lord, where am I at? Some of you in this room listening to us online, you have deep bitterness in your life. You've been hurt. You've been wronged, and you've never forgiven that person. Maybe it's your husband. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's an ex-husband, ex-wife. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a neighbor, coworker, an employer. Church hurt's a big deal, too. You've been hurt by a pastor in the past. You've been hurt by a staff member. You've been hurt by a brother or sister in the church. These are real things. What are we to do with it? We forgive. And we ask the Lord to help us do that. 
We take a self-assessment and say, hey, am I the offender? Is there things in my life that come across toward others? And, and so am I leading others into sin? You see, you could be part of the problem in someone else's bitterness because of the way you speak, because of the way you do. And so just pause. Pay attention to yourself this morning. Where are you? How do you line up to these five responses? Are you expecting to be tempted to sin or are you just kind of walking blindly through life? Are you aware of how you might be used by the enemy to cause others to sin? Are you willingly calling out sin in people's lives? Willing to call it out in your own life? Because that's where it's got to start and then we've got to speak into others' lives. Are we willing to forgive people? Are we willing to trust the Lord to help us to forgive others? Where are you at today when it comes to your walk with Jesus? When it comes to sin, when it comes to forgiving sin, when it comes to walking in progressive sanctification, where are you at? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, we sit in this room, we watch from home, and we are all in different places. Some of us are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, some aren't. Some of us are in relationship with Jesus Christ, but we are walking at a guilty distance because we are the ones engaging in sin. We are giving into the temptation that's before us. God, we may even be the one who's the tempter. Father, this morning, I pray that we'd be willing to call out the sin that we see. Call it out in our own lives, rebuke it, call it out in others and rebuke it in love and grace, mercy, but willing to step into that space and say, this is sin, this is not right. And in response to that, I pray that we'd be willing to forgive. God, those of us who are walking at a guilty distance, I pray that as we ask for forgiveness, we're willing to forgive ourselves. And as others ask for forgiveness, we're willing to forgive them of the offense that they've committed. Lord, all of this, we have to reach back and trust you and your power and your ability to help us do that. So this morning, we want to pay attention to ourselves because we know that you've called us to holiness and we know that our lives would be holy and our church would be holy if we were serious about these issues. So Father, in the next few minutes, as we move into a time of response, as we sing this song, as we stand to our feet, help us to be vulnerable this morning in Jesus' name. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.